Welcome to the Sustain, Change and Grow podcast, where we discuss questions related to climate change and sustainable personal development with experts across different fields. I'm Dilara Salakhova. I am currently working at the European Central Bank on sustainable finance topics, and I would like to emphasize that this podcast is not related to my work at the ECB. Instead, it is a part of my desire and effort to raise awareness about the importance of individual actions to address current environmental issues and to bring desired changes into one's life. Welcome to the Sustain, Change and Growth podcast. In this episode, I am happy to welcome Amir Habibulin, who is currently an R&D manager of industrial product development in Anomera, a company leading innovation in green chemistry, material science, and sustainable manufacturing. Amir holds a PhD in polymer chemistry and is constantly looking for new ideas to design and create novel polymer and hybrid materials with unique properties and applications. So Amir, a very warm welcome to the uh, Sustain, Change and Grow podcast. Hello, thank you very much. And so I can imagine that uh, for most of the listeners, my introduction sounded Chinese, well, as it is actually for me. So let's start from the basics and please tell me what do you do in very simple terms? Well, I do chemistry. That's the simplest explanation. I work um, with plastic. I, I used to work with plastics and polymers as part of my training, part of my education. And then later I switched to green, the biomaterials, which is namely just cellulose. It is the main material that the trees are made of. It's the fibers that make our trees most of the plants well in fact all plants um, but our main source of cellulose is trees so we work with canadian forestry products to extract nano very small nano sized particles of cellulose and then we apply them in different segments of the industry in the cosmetic personal care markets but also in more traditional industries such as construction industry or paints and coatings all that so basically, in short terms, we take green material, which is cellulose, grows, literally grows on trees, and we put it in something that is about, uh, around us, such as paints and coatings and construction materials and your facial creams and all other things. Okay, well, that sounds uh, much clearer. And so the idea is... Uh... Uh, really to get rid of the plastics, which is produced using the fossil fuels, right? And one of the most unsustainable materials with a huge uh, carbon impact and replace it by something which is uh, sustainable and natural. Yes and no, partially. In the segment of the cosmetics and personal care products, indeed, our goal is to replace the microplastics that are heavily used in most of the cosmetic products like such as foundations whether it's liquid foundation pressed powder foundations microplastics are used for currently used heavily for optical properties such as like soft focus you know it creates the blurred coating on your on your skin to kind of like make make your skin look more smooth so you could do the same thing using natural materials such as cellulose 
The main harm from the plastics, though, is the fact that you wash it away from your face and it goes straight to the drain and then goes straight to the uh, water, to the like to the rivers or to the oceans, and it's accumulated in fish, accumulated in other marine organisms. So it's not so much about the carbon footprint; it's more about reducing the plastic waste, facing the paint. So we don't make paint out of cellulose. We just add a little bit of cellulose to make a traditional paint stronger or, you know, a more resistant towards scratching, more resistant towards some, some sort of mechanical impact, but also partially greener, of course, because we're adding a green ingredient. But so you keep all the same plastics uh, uh, in the paints and you adjust a little bit of cellulose to, to make it greener? Well, we increase its hardness, we, we increase its durability. So your paint lasts longer and you need to apply it less. And over the time, your use of paint reduces. This is a way to make it greener. So it's not just the material itself. It's also if you make your material last longer, you need less of this material over the long period of time. Mm -hmm. That's part of the green. Okay. Uh, okay. Movement sort of, or the part of the green agenda as well. And so now just getting back to what you said about the personal care products. So uh, you actually mentioned that we are concerned with microplastics getting into the river and the fish, but is there any effect that these microplastics have on the skin and on the health of the people? I would be very cautious about this because I simply do not know. I, I don't know enough, I admit. As far as I know, they're quite benign. So they're quite non-toxic when it comes to the human skin, partially because it has been tested before, before it was introduced to the industry. I think it was found quite non-toxic. So I probably would not be worried about microplastic getting through your skin. Also, microparticles usually do not get through the skin that easily. The nanoparticles do. Mm -hmm. Microparticles... And then when I, when I say that, I mentioned nanocellulose, so the nanoparticles of cellulose that we use, we, we make microparticles out of nanocellulose. It's a long story, but we also put microparticles of cellulose in the cosmetic products as well. Okay. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be worried much about the transdermal effect with the, the transport through the skin. Again, I don't know enough, but as far as I know, it's not a concern. It's mostly the fact that they're washed away and then go the environment after that okay and what is the effect uh, it has on the environment well it's being consumed by uh, as i said a lot of uh, marine organisms fish and uh, some other stuff and it just accumulates as i i don't know if you've heard about the the general microplastic pollution issue mm -hmm. it's the little pieces of plastic that get everywhere we could find it in our drinking water, for example. So it's like literally everywhere. They found it in Antarctic, in, in the ice already. The ice there is contaminated with microplastics. Yeah. And it's a general accumulating of, uh, let's say, the, the foreign material, foreign matter in the living organisms, and then goes up in the food chain because, you know, if it accumulates on fish, then it accumulates in other organisms that eat fish. And well, then us. it... And, and then eventually in us as well. The long-term health effect of microplastics is still being studied, but 
there are some indications that they could cause inflammation in the tissues just because they you know absorb on different parts of your body in, inside and there's nothing super good about having microplastics in your food mm-hmm. yeah whether it's for humans or for animals there are some studies that humans eat up to something like a credit card per month of plastic so uh, pretty much yeah i i 21 gram or something like this it's very likely likely i do not know exact numbers but we do microplastics in pretty much everything that we eat or drink these days Okay, so uh, are problems with the pollution and toxicity of the uh, industrial production and industrial chemistry as we know it now? Oh, yes, of course. Yes. This is one of the main pollutants. I mean, chemistry is a very broad term, right? Every production, every manufacturing generates some sort of waste and some sort of uh, pollution in terms of greenhouse gases. So it's um, carbon footprint and, and some waste. In the developed world and most of the Western countries, there are some measures to prevent the waste to get into the environment. So there are some filters, there are some measures to collect or recycle or reuse, recuperate your chemicals, reduce the amount of waste that goes into the environment, treating the water, the wastewater treatment. And these regulations keep getting stricter and stricter as you know the, the problem with the pollution, problem with the waste gets more more and more pronounced while in some other countries let's say not so developed this problem is not as heavily regulated as in the west so a lot of the chemicals get into the environment just from directly from the plants from Mm -hmm. the manufacturing plants or from the production plants so yes it is of course a major concern it's a global concern has been around since the chemical industry started being a thing you know so this is more than 100 years and then people slowly were realizing that we cannot just dump our waste straight to the rivers and started putting measures in it but of course as i said not everywhere these measures are taken and we still and of course there's a cost to that as well so to recuperate or to reduce your waste or to recycle your waste you need to you know these measures cost money so a lot of productions in other places of the world they just I mean, this is the cheapest way to run your plant is just to dump your waste directly to the river. Yeah, of course. Not the most sustainable way, but, uh, you know, sometimes the, when, when you need to cut your costs, so that's what happens. Mm. So, yes, short answer, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, the, the two main elements are essentially the carbon footprint and this microplastic, or there's anything else uh, that is really uh, as bad? Uh, no, so microplastic is, in fact, I would say is the less of the, all the evils. Again, this is just personal to me. First of all, it's relatively new. People started thinking about this just in the last couple of decades. While we have been dumping other toxic waste, I mean, microplastics are not directly toxic. So we have to understand that, right? Because it mm-hmm. comes from plastic and plastic is around us and plastic is generally not toxic. Plastic by itself is quite, you know, uh, biologically friendly, I would say. Just, uh, you know, uh, anything that's made of plastic <laughs> around you, yeah. It does not pose a direct hazard mm-hmm. to you, to, to the animals or to the plants. There are chemicals that pose direct hazards, such as sulfuric acid, for example. If you dump sulfuric acid to the river or you dump uh, sodium hydroxide, something that you learn from school, like the very, you know, basic 
like a strong asset or a strong base if this is part of the of your part of the waste from your production process and you just take it and, and dump it to the river that is a direct hazard it would literally kill the fish yeah. or whatever whatever lives in the river so and this is much older than microplastics because people have been doing this for quite a while or the waste from any heavy metal production for example but this has been already quite a lot regulated, right? So this is really, as you're saying, not a new issue. It has been there for a while and we know that's a problem and it's regulated. So let's say uh, uh, carbon emissions is something which we have become concerned uh, much more recently, as well as the plastics. I wouldn't be that optimistic. So <laughs> yes, it is regulated. Uh, in many cases, these regulations are violated. In many cases, regulations are not in place at all, such as, as I said, in some of the third world countries. Uh, in many cases, regulations are there, but companies just don't follow them because, again, it's cheaper not to follow them. You have probably seen the apocalyptic pictures of some of the small metallurgical towns in, in Ural Mountains in, in Russia, where, mm -hmm. you know, they, they just pollute the rivers pollute all the environment around the plant. There's huge mega corporations that produce nickel, for example, or produce like other heavy metals, and everything around it turns into the, some sort of apocalyptic landscape. So I'm sure there are some regulations there, but the question is how much do the, do the companies follow them? So, right. so yeah, it's still a very, uh, you know, it, it's a big of a concern. It's mm -hmm. still an issue. So I, I wouldn't say this, this issue is very far from being resolved. Okay. And of course, carbon footprint is, I wouldn't say it's something that we're mostly focused on. It's something that is mostly being buzzed in the media and you know, circulated in the general public, in the political, in the media. So people are talking about it. That doesn't mean that we have resolved our other issues, although they're as old as the chemical industry itself. But Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Now we have to report uh, some uh, indicators regarding how they uh, use their waste or how they recycle their waste. Yeah. All of that. Again, in the developed world, in the Western, most of the Western world, yes, of course. Yes. You have to, okay. you, so you, you have to report everything. You have to report every, every measure that you take, how to reduce the, you know, the waste, how to, minimize the amount of hazardous stuff that you, you put in the environment some of the stuff is directly banned so there is no other way you have to collect it yourself and then go and just do something with it but just don't don't directly dump it to the environment so mm -hmm. so yes it, it, it is a very regulated industry a heavily regulated area so uh, you have to work with the regulatory departments of, of all kinds of governments from federal to provincial or your local municipal, all of that is recorded, all of that is discussed, and yes. And still there are a lot of uh, roundabouts, how to uh, overcome Unfortunately, this. Unfortunately, yes, there is. Um, some okay. of that is just malicious. Mm -hmm. so, because it's cheaper. That, sometimes, yeah, and sometimes it's just, uh, there's always a human factor, sometimes it's an accident, sometimes it's just negligence, or sometimes it's something, you know, the what they call force majeure, force mm -hmm. majeure, something that you cannot control. If it was a, there was an accident, you had a spill, then you, of course you have to collect, you have to take some measures to minimize the harm, but things happen, yeah. 
Mm -hmm. So, but uh, overall, you see positive developments of people being aware of these issues and really taking uh, actions to, to address them. That's what you said. What are the barriers? Like if you, some of them you probably mentioned in your answer, but if you summarize, like what are really the barriers to solve this problem? Do you mean the barriers to... To become more sustainable, to, to have a more sustainable chemistry, a, a more sustainable production of materials, uh, etc. Yeah, well, I guess we're talking about two different sides of it. One of them is, uh, let's say, uh, what we call a traditional industry, something that has been around for 100 years, and they're just looking for ways to minimize their harm, probably the harm that they've been doing to the environment for quite some time. And then now they're being pressed by the government, pressed by the general public, pressed by the media. So they're, they're looking to do something post-waste generation, let's say. So... Could you expand this, like post-waste generation? Uh, so let's say, let's say there was a factory that has been working for 100 years and they generate, I don't know, uh, sulfuric acid as their waste, and then mm -hmm. they have to deal with it. So they naturally are looking to ways how to uh, minimize the waste, how to put it, how to store it in a sustainable way, you know, how to minimize the harm that they do to the environment. So this process has been, I think, going on for quite some time now, even before this uh, green movement, green agenda in the last couple of decades. So this is, let, let's say you, you, you do not really change your production. You have the same yeah. waste. You just look for the way how to store this waste, how to minimize your harm mm -hmm. post-production. But the part of the green chemistry as well, the other part is how to change your existing process to make it more green. So how to switch to a, you know something that is how to find reagents or how to find the supplying materials that are less harmful how to maybe make your process more efficient mm -hmm. less polluting so that part is also being this is the part that is growing in the last couple of decades quite significantly so we're talking about both sides right mm -hmm. how to change your process like how to evolve in the more green and sustainable way but also when you generate the waste how to handle it in the more sustainable way as well. The barriers are usually just in one way or another related to the cost and to the complexity of, you know, your change in the process. So, mm -hmm. which are also probably related to the cost at the end. So most of the companies are looking to the way how to reduce the cost. A lot of these measures that they have to take to minimize their impact would cost some money which is natural, right? You have to put additional filters, you have to hire more people, you have to sometimes pay the companies that come and pick up your hazardous waste and store them somehow. So all of that costs money. So I would say that probably that's a principal barrier. Let me just say, this sounds for me more for the second approach that you mentioned for how to manage your waste more sustainably. Right. But if we're talking about developing more sustainable way of producing, then you will need less money to manage your waste afterwards. Right. So like this uh, sounds a little bit more like win-win situation. Yes, but that also costs a lot of money to change your process. It, it usually does cost a fortune. I mean, in a large production, of course, if you have a, a very, you know, established uh, supply chain and a very established production process, introducing some changes to it usually 
it, it takes time and it takes money. Mm -hmm. um, it all starts from the lab. So from the research scientists, the chemists, they have to develop a new process, which usually takes uh, lots of time and then also lots of money. And then you have to implement whatever they developed in the lab in the plant, which is a whole different area of science, the scaling up. It usually also takes lots of time and lots of money. And then, so before you implement that, you would pay quite a bit. But again, you're right, in the long term, in the long term, that should be a win-win for everyone. So mm -hmm. the companies would make a greener alternative, um, make their process less you know, impactful to the environment. And then eventually they should be able to save more money on like the waste. It's all very, you know, very high level. There, of course, there are issues everywhere. And at, at the end, it usually just costs more. <laughs> and then that cost is usually just goes down on the, on the consumers. So yeah. consumers In the short term. Exactly, yeah. Um, there is a government as a regulator there, so you cannot really cheat. So <laughs> again, yeah. in, 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 the, in the ideal world, so all of that, you do all of that under the supervision of the government and yeah, yeah. but in, I, in the long, in the global way, let's say, if we take the whole planet as one big friendly, you know, <laughs> brotherhood <laughs> in, in the long term, yes, it, it should be a win-win for everyone. Yeah, but are there enough technologies, like are there already technologies uh, of sustainable processes that can be implemented? And the uh, question is the lack of money to change these processes, or there is still uh, a need, a strong need to, to do this R&D research and development of these processes, finding new ways, new materials, how to replace uh, all the toxic or polluting materials in the current processes. Yes, and of course. There's no way that like everything is ready and just waited for be, waiting for being implemented. No, I mean we we need constant research and development work mm -hmm. to develop new products, new processes, new ingredients all the time. This will never be over, at least not in the, in the nearest future for sure. There are some successful examples of where, you know, the new products and new processes were able to change the whole. Can you give uh, examples? Well, the one of the famous one is probably the, the issue with the ozone layer that, mm -hmm. as you probably heard, I mean, ozone layer, the, the holes in the ozone layer were quite a concern mm -hmm. uh, for a long time, since like 1970s, I think. And then in the last couple of decades, it's it's healing so we have we see less ozone holes in fact much less there is a long story to that there was a, a couple of chemists who ended up getting nobel prize later in their career roland and molina they showed that the ozone layer is depleted because of well mostly because of this uh, freons mm -hmm. and the freons is something that you use in your fridge as a cooling liquid you know and they're highly fluorinated and then this substances when they get to the environment they are very harmful for the ozone layer they cause ozone to decompose and they could cause the the holes in the ozone layer so there's there have been a lot of work a lot of let's say uh, research of course a lot of research but then followed by a, a very strong um, public movement and then mm -hmm. industrial mm -hmm. movement to eliminate those freons from the 
from the industry, from the circulation, and people have replaced it with something less harmful. And now we almost don't use these fluorinated freons. And in fact, we see the results. It's quite impressive. Ozone layer is healing and we don't see the holes anymore. So that's, uh, that is one very good example of the successful implementation of a change and, you know, of a, uh, how we could actually turn around the, the, the harm that we do to the environment and we could make it better at the end. If yeah. we all come together, there have been, of course, a, uh, a regulation put in place by the government banning these things. Mm -hmm. So all the companies had to switch to something else. So there, there was a good, you know, uh, again, I like this example because it was a good uh, a joint effort from the research, from the industry, from, from science, from media, from the government, from public. That was before this issue was politicized. Probably now that wouldn't be very much possible, unfortunately, because right now the environment is, and in general, like the green movement is very politicized. So whatever you propose, even if it's more, even if it's very reasonable, there will be a, a so, certain certain fraction of people who would say it's your political agenda. Yeah, unfortunately, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you see it everywhere now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that was all, all the ozone layer thing was before that, and people recognized environmental issues as not your political platform, but as environmental issues. So. But don't you think that this political agenda is mostly American or maybe North American issue? I really don't see that much in Europe. Well, it definitely is more pronounced. I would again, I'm I'm not a political expert by no means, of course. I do not know, but it looks like it's definitely more pronounced in North America for sure. But I'm pretty sure it spills over mm -hmm. to Europe and, and to the rest of the world. Yeah. And then when you I mean, we wouldn't go very much deep in politics. <laughs> in politics, yeah, it's not the topic. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely not. But then, let's say in the discussion of the green issues, a lot of the time, the, the, the you know, general public, general people just understand that they want me to pay more for mm -hmm. the green stuff. Like they would either raise taxes or make my, you know, uh, the gas to, for, to fuel your cars would become, you know, more expensive. And then, of course, that becomes a political issue, I think. And that's, that's quite universal. That's not just North America. Like, yeah, if you have to pay absolutely. more for gas daily, then it, at some point it becomes a political issue, saying, like, why is this, like, some sort of radical green activist making my gas more expensive because blah, blah, and then that's how it starts. And then Yeah, indeed, actually, virus. for the... For the moment, uh, indeed, sustainability sounds very much like more like a pain and the cost exactly. than anything yeah. else, other than the benefit. Yeah, and then people are quite skeptical, quite naturally, because they see like this political leader. Like the, probably this recent example of the Glasgow summit in in Scotland, mm -hmm. where every leader came to Glasgow on their like private jets, carrying just one person. And, you know, that is just a huge yeah. carbon footprint. Everyone flew there in their private jets. And then they were sitting there discussing how to reduce the carbon footprint. And then they left on their private jets. And that's quite a hypocrisy. And people who have to pay more at the gas station every day, they're like, why are they doing this to me? Like they're, they're flying on their jets and everything. That could have been a Zoom call, you know? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> But I liked, but, I really liked yeah. your example about this successful story about the ozone layer and how we uh, managed as a humanity to reverse the, the harm that we did to the environment. So it actually gives some hope 
that we can still reverse the um, well the climate change and uh, the loss of the biodiversity and all the uh, environmental harm that we are doing uh, at so many levels. We could do many wonderful things when we work together. Yes, this is yeah. true. And so maybe just uh, to finish on um, uh, on on this R and D uh, and the new technologies, do you see enough? or maybe at all, uh, the investments coming into this uh, area. So that, uh, because essentially we need uh, a lot of uh, money to, to do this research, to find the new solutions, uh, greener sure. solutions. Uh, what is your assessment uh, being in the industry? There is definitely a momentum being gained right now, whether it's enough, of course not. I mean, but I would always say no, regardless. Of. <laughs> it's never enough. Um, but never enough data. Never, never enough investments. Exactly. Never enough data. Never enough money. It's it's it's, it's a science way. Um, but there is a growth. Yeah, and um, people talk more about this, and the governments talk more about this. The, the question is how to switch from the talk to the, you know, to the walk. Mm -hmm. So, um, and where do you see the role of individual people, of individual consumers, uh, uh, of each of us? How can we contribute? Because you mentioned many times governments, governments have to do this, uh, have to do that. But where is sure. the role of the individual consumer? Vote for the government. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, well, so yes, indeed, I do believe strongly that. Well, of course, we're all responsible for what we do. So there is a share that we could contribute ourselves. Uh, one of the probably the simplest way is this famous reduce, reuse and recycle mm -hmm. uh, motto, you know, so you have to kind of be aware of what you're using, what you're consuming and how to uh, generate less waste yourself as a household. Mm -hmm. But we should realize that a, a lot of the like a general audience usually cannot directly control the production manufacturing processes or like petrol, um, you know, petroleum industry or gas prices and stuff like that. So you could minimize your environmental impact yourself as biking to work or recycling your waste or, you know, doing these things that we all should do. So I do agree with that. But I still think that the majority of the responsibility lays on the large corporations, on the production facilities, and on the governments, of course. So and making the choice about what you're buying. So of course, like uh, buy less, uh, consume less, etc. But even uh, for what you have to buy, voting with your money for the right products, uh, isn't it uh, a significant power that the consumer can uh, exercise and to? Uh, guide where the companies, these big corporations will develop? It is, yes, for sure. However, I, I don't know how, we're talking about the Western world, first of all, right? Because we mm -hmm. both live in the, in the West. And yes, it, it, it does become a significant factor. Uh, there is a market pressure for the green, right? So people, mm -hmm. do, people are now more aware, people now choose more consciously what they consume and this is great and this is how it should be yes uh, people in a developing countries let's say people who don't have enough money to you know afford this i i wouldn't blame people in some poor countries for choosing a cheaper product 
just because they need to eat and you mm -hmm. know you, you couldn't just sit here uh in here i mean sit in the in the in the north in the America, rich like world I, yeah like i do and then saying like all oh, those people there you know they're well, so irresponsible <laughs> so, well, but they're not big contributors the biggest contributors are probably those northern americans who have much more money who consume uh, without thinking uh, completely unconsciously that's where we should start like with ourselves right Yes, to answer your question, yes, of course, you should vote with your money. That's right. Okay, and so what about you? <laughs> uh, I'm not very good at this, I, I'll be honest. I would admit I don't read the labels very often on the stuff that I buy. And well, I mean, I, I this is my this is my work every day. So I work on this process and I work in um, in this environment, you know, in the industry that is uh, working with the green materials and everything. So after that, when I go home and then I go to the store, it's not like I'm too tired to look for it. I think I have it somewhere in the back of my mind. I, I kind of realize how complicated this whole issue is. And I, I don't exactly know how, like just me as a little person in this big wide world, uh, how would I, you know, make any impact if we buy this cream and then this other cream that is a bit more expensive, but it has this and that. So I would say I just don't know enough and I'm probably too ignorant to, <laughs> to study in the final, in like in the, what, what you buy in the shelf in the supermarket. I do not know the difference, to be honest. Okay, and you don't, don't spend don't be, enough don't time like, yeah. <laughs> to, to, yes. to, to learn about it. Don't so. be like me. Be better, please. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> I will probably improve. And regarding your own, like the area in which you work. So, you, you know, for example, some uh, paintings, let's say, here you, uh, you buy a house, you need to paint it. So, mm -hmm. at least in the area where you are an expert. Would you still go for a cheaper product, though knowing that it's unsustainable? Or would you try to buy something more sustainable because you know no, it's it, much better? That's actually a good point. Yes, in this area, yes, I would I would go for a more sustainable product. I would read the labels because I work with this. I, I also understand what goes there because when I read the label, I could understand how this is made and everything. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Another good example of the sustainable movement Again, it's much older than the last couple of decades. It's probably last, I don't know, 50, 40 years is the water-based paints, right? So the mm -hmm. once you mentioned paints, um, when you go to a department store to buy paint, I don't know if you remember when we were younger, all the paint was all like based on the solvent and it was very smelly. So you, yes, had, to right. open, you had to open the windows yeah. After you paint the inside of your house and then you couldn't live there for like a couple of days to let all the pain, all the smell evaporate. So that's not the case anymore. As, as you probably know, all the paint is interior architectural paint. What we use to, to coat our walls is based on water now. So it doesn't smell nearly as much as the old paint that is based on the solvent. And it, this is actually quite good example of the green alternative because they switch the solvent from the like organic solvents like acetone or some some alcohols to water so it became and water you know it dries just evaporates doesn't generate any waste 
if the paint accidentally goes into the environment, the water is much better, you know, mm -hmm. for plants and for living organisms and solvents. And of course, your paint itself is the same, but it just stays on the wall, but the solvent evaporates. So, right. so that, that's, that's quite a good example. And then, yes, they keep improving the paints. They keep developing new greener paints. And if I would choose a paint for myself, for my house, I would look at the label. I would look what they put in it and I would make my decision based on. Mm -hmm. um, what is about acrylic paints? Well, that's what it is. The, the water-based water acrylic emulsions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like the, the general, what they call architectural coatings, architectural paints is what you put inside your house on the wall. Mm -hmm. And then on the outdoor, usually people still put the solvent. Actually, no, they put water base as well. Yeah. Let me ask you the last question, which I ask all my guests. So uh, what are the two most inspiring books for you? Is it in terms of my job, like chemistry or just in general? Well, let's say maybe sustainability, maybe uh, in general, maybe about uh, some, some self-development, the change, whatever. Mm. For the, not necessarily chemistry, but in general, the materials uh, that make our world, the world around us, I do recommend reading uh, Stuff Matters. It's a it's a popular science book by British scientist Mark Miodovnik. Stuff Matters is the title of the book, and it's about the materials that are around us and their history, how, how they were developed over time. Mm -hmm. And these are the broadest materials from concrete and like glass to chocolate, for example, you know. So very interesting, uh, interesting read, and it really opens your eyes in terms of uh, how slowly were things changing and how wonderful things are that are just, you know, in our everyday life, but we don't notice how it's actually quite mm -hmm. complicated. And more technical book is Making the Modern World. is again, it's about the materials chemistry, about the different materials that are used. It's also popular science. It's by Vaclav Smil. Mm -hmm. A professor in, in uh, I think so in one of the Canadian universities, I think in Manitoba, University of Manitoba or something. Anyway, again, it's a popular science, so it's not a fiction book. It's a, it's a bit more technical, so it may probably not for the general audience, but also very interesting to read. What's the name? Uh, Making the Modern World. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, what um, is interesting, what you mentioned uh, about the first book that... Uh, stuff matters? Yeah, the stuff matters. So knowing the, about the things which surround us and we are not aware of, uh, of them and of how they are made. So it's often, um, I hear something similar about sustainability. So one guest uh, basically compared uh, working on sustainability is like uh, using X-rays because uh, just suddenly you start thinking where the things come from on your table, where your clothes come from. So like mm -hmm. you, you're really starting paying attention that the things just don't appear from the fresh air, but they're made somewhere and they make an impact on people, on the environment, etc. And so you become just suddenly awakened. So somehow mm -hmm. it, uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, things that appear very often in the discussion about sustainability. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and also uh, on the separate 
like on the same matter, I uh, I do recommend the books of Bill Bryson. And I love books of Bill Bryson in general. He's the writer of like popular science books. So the brief history of private life. Again, it's not directly connected to the sustainability or green aspect, but it just shows you what are different spaces in our house, like how they evolved, how they were invented, not just the materials, but also like the evolution of construction, the evolution of house, like, you know, how houses were built and the different rooms, what purpose did they serve? Quite interesting. Yeah. Very interesting suggestions. Thanks a lot for this. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you overall for the discussion. That was very interesting. So it's uh, always interesting to talk to people from uh, different fields and see different views. So, and um, thank you for having me.